You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you once again for joining us to uh, take this opportunity to learn our faith, to grow closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Archbishop Sheen brought hundreds of thousands of souls to Christ with his thoughtful inspirations. And so I'm excited to share with you today a broadcast from 1948. Uh, Archbishop Sheen was then known as Monsignor Sheen. And he hosted the Catholic Hour. And uh, he was on the air for many years. And each week he would give his lessons and help answer those questions we all have. Who is God? Does he exist? Why was I made? Am I saved? Do I have any chance of getting to heaven? Does heaven even exist? All these questions that we hear uh, spoken by friends, family, co-workers. Uh, Archbishop Sheen spoke to everyone, and that was his gift. Whether you were Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, or agnostic, or an atheist, he spoke to everyone. And so it's going to be great to share this talk with you today, entitled, Is God Hard to Find? So now many of us know the answer, but uh, for those who don't, you will know the answer in the next 15 minutes. And so let's uh, begin this time before we actually listen to this broadcast. Uh, let's pray together. And so I love praying for favors. Um, we have our go-to saints and love to pray to Fulton Sheen for a favor. And so please join me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you alone grant us every blessing in heaven and on earth through the redemptive mission of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. If it be according to your will, glorify your servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, by granting the favor I now request through his powerful and prayerful intercession. And we make this prayer confidently through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Always feels good to pray to our intercessors in heaven. We like to call them the church triumphant. Uh, but there is, of course, the church suffering, which is us. 
and uh, we need to pray together and help each other. So uh, let us continue to uh, travel up, I call it that hill. Uh, Archbishop Sheen would say, heaven is built on a hill. We need to climb. So everyone, happy climbing, and enjoy this reflection entitled, Is God Hard to Find? We present now to the Catholic Hour audience the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen, Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America, Washington, D.C. Monsignor Sheen continues his series of addresses on the general subject, The Modern Soul in Search of God, with an address entitled, Is God Hard to Find? Friends, our three preceding broadcasts have stressed the idea that modern man locked inside of his own mind cannot find peace except through redemption from sin. That brings up today's problem. Is the God who is a savior hard to find? God is not hard to find. He is the most obvious fact of human experience. He can be found either through the beauty of the stars or through the aspirations of a heart which, like a seashell, speak of the ocean of divinity. Why is it, then, that so few souls come to him? The fault is on our side, not God's. Most souls are like a man living in a dark room during the daytime, complaining that the light is hard to find. All they would have to do to discover the light would be to open the blinds. If we are not aware of him, it is because we are too complicated, or because our noses are lifted high in the air in pride. For lo, he is at our very feet. We need only to turn a stone to start a wing. The grace of God comes to man in just the degree that man opens his soul. The only limit to man's capacity to receive him is man's willingness to do so. Some hearts open up only a little crevice, and others with complete abandon surrender their empty cisterns to be filled with the waters of eternal life. Many souls are unhappy because locked up with their anxieties, frustrations, and fears, they refuse to open the door and let in the refreshing air of God's grace. God knocks at the door of our soul. The latch, however, is on our side, and not on God's side. And God breaks down no doors. The tragedy of sin is not so much that we do wrong, but that we will not let God help us do what is right. We smash the bow so that he cannot play on the violin. We keep him at arm's length because we refuse to be loved. The God Savior is not hard to find, but rather we are afraid of being found. I believe there are three principal reasons which keep us from a Savior. First, we want to be saved, but not from our sins. Secondly, we want to be saved, but not at too great a cost. 
And finally, we want to be saved in our way, not in God's way. First, we want to be saved, but not from our sins. We are willing to be saved from poverty, from war, from ignorance, from disease, from economic insecurity, for such types of salvation leave the individual whims and passions and sins untouched. This is one of the reasons why social Christianity is so very popular. For by concentrating on slum clearance and international unity, the individual conscience is left untouched and unpurified. These individuals think that by making other people good, they dispense themselves from the need of giving up their own sins. At the average dinner table, men do not object to the subject of religion being introduced in conversation, provided religion has nothing to do with the purging of a conscience. Thus do souls stand trembling at the gate of bliss and dare not venture in fearful lest having him, they have naught else beside. And the second reason why we do not find a savior is because we want to be saved, but not at too great a cost. The God who dungs his fields with sacrifice in order to bring forth the vine of life frightens us. Most souls are afraid of God precisely because of his goodness. And God's goodness is dissatisfied with anything that is imperfect. Our greatest tragedy is not that God may not love us enough, but that he may love us too much. As the lover wants to see his beloved perfect in manner and refinement, so too God, loving us, desires that we be perfect, for this is our happiness. As the musician loves the violin, tightens the strings with sacrificial strain that they may give forth a better tone, so God submits us to sacrifice to make us saints. There are many who like to hear the sound of their knuckles as they knock at the door of truth, but they would drop dead if the door ever opened to them, because truth implies responsibility. Because accepting a savior demands a surrender and the dethronement of false ideals of the heart, many become bargain hunters in religion and dilettantes in morality. They want to be saved, but not at too great a cost, not at the price of a cross. So there echoes through their lives the challenge of old, Come down from your cross, and we will believe. And the third reason we do not come to a divine Savior is because we want to be saved, but in our way, not in God's way. Very often one hears it said that one ought to be free to worship God each in his own way. Now this indeed is true inasmuch as it implies that freedom of conscience and living up to the lights that God has given to each of us is right and proper. But the statement can be very wrong if it means that we worship God in our way and not in God's way. 
What would happen to our traffic problem if we said that the American way of life allowed every man to drive in traffic in his way and not in the law's way? Or if patients began saying to their doctors, I want to be cured in my way, not yours. There's a tremendous amount of egotism and conceit in those popular articles and lectures entitled, My Idea of Religion, or My Idea of God. An individual religion can be just as stupid as an individual astronomy or in individual mathematics. Individuals who say, I will serve God in my way, and you serve God in your way, ought to inquire whether or not it would be advisable to serve God in his way. And this is precisely what frightens the modern soul. For the conscience of the modern man is uneasy. When he is in sin, he wants a religion that leaves out hell. If he is already married again against the law of Christ, he wants a religion that does not condemn divorce. They want to be saved, all right, but not in God's way, in theirs. And thus refusing to molt all of their vain desires they miss the flight to that love that leaves all other beauty pain. And the souls who for any one of these three reasons turn their backs on the Savior are not happy. No godless man is happy. He's not happy any more than is a sightless eye or a deaf ear. For as the eye was made for beauty, and the year was made for harmony, so the soul was made for perfect life and truth and love, which is God. Now let us direct our attention to those God-responsive souls who repose in a Savior as the very heart of their existence. Many joys follow from such a union. Now among these benefits, we will mention three. First, in true sanctity, you will pass from a state of speculation to submission. There's a world of difference between knowing about God through study and knowing God through love, as there is a world of difference between a courtship carried on by mail and by direct contact. There are many professors in universities who know the proofs of the existence of God better than some people who say their prayers. But because the professors never love the God whom they know by study, no new knowledge of God is ever given to them. They like to talk about religion, but they do nothing about it. And for that reason, no new horizons are open to them. The woman at the well wanted to keep religion on a purely speculative level, so she raised the question as to whether one ought to worship in Jerusalem or Samaria. And our blessed Lord took the discussion out of the realm of theory by reminding her about her five husbands, thus suggesting that her love of the theoretical side of religion was an escape. 
She was trying to avoid the moral amendments which submission to God requires. The God-responsive soul does not want to water down the gospel to suit his weakness. Rather, such a soul seeks to identify itself with divine love, and that is why religion primarily consists in submission to the will of God. You who love God, pray not that the infinite may satisfy your finite interests, but that your finite interests may serve the infinite. You do not want to use God. You want God to use you. And like John the Baptist, you say, I must decrease. He must increase. St. Teresa said, God does not give himself entirely to us until we give ourselves entirely to him. And once you do that, you will find that you will never again be disappointed. Cheerfulness will reign. For all the while, you will think of yourself as clay in the hands of the divine potter who is forming you into a vessel of election. And you will have only one prayer on your lips. Not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. There is a second benefit, too, that will accrue to you if you accept your Savior. Your life will move from circumference to center. By this I mean you will be less upset by the externals of life. The more you lean on the externals of life, the more they can disturb you. A rainy day, a disappointment, a soap opera can spoil your disposition. But the more you lean on an interior life, the more God is the center of things, the more you seek to do his will. And then nothing distracts you, nothing upsets you. Unreality then becomes that which cannot be used or is not used for God's purposes. There will be no arrow in the quiver of your soul for anything but the divine target. Of course, your friends will make fun of you if you love God that much. And they will do it to cover up their own self-reproach. They will say of you, that your love reminds them of romantic love. And very often in romantic love, you have heard people say, I cannot understand what he sees in her. Of course not. For love is blind. It is blind not only to the defects in the beloved, it is blind to all else save the beloved. Love has its own eyes. All others but the lover see only with the eyes of the body and wonder what there is to love. But the lover sees through the eyes of the heart and finds in another a sweetness and a love that blind hearts do not perceive. Lift this analogy to the divine level and you understand why the unconverted souls think that divine love is foolishness. 
They cannot understand what a man can see in God. As St. Paul said, the animal man discerneth not, but be not deterred from your resolve that God is everything and what is not God is nothing. To the eyes and ears of the world, it would seem that a national broadcast such as this, appealing to souls to love God more, is the cause of many souls turning to God. That is not true. To the eyes of faith and to my own, I confess no illusion. Some good soul who at the moment of this broadcast, instead of listening to me, is saying a rosary, is doing more good for the world than all of the broadcasts, which are only broadcasts, or those born of equal prayer. It is the centered souls that affect the world. And that is why we ask you each week to make a holy hour of meditation and reparation a day. Try it this week. See how happy you will be. Only the God-centered souls can help the souls on the circumference. And only they have the power to do so because they are in touch with God. What matters the length of the water pipe unless there is a reservoir of water at the other end? And finally, by accepting a Savior, you will find that you are governed not so much by your own habits of goodness of the natural order or even by virtues, as you will be moved directly by the Holy Spirit of God. There's a difference between a man rowing a boat and the same man being driven by a sail full of wind. And in like manner, the soul that lives by the gifts of the Spirit of God is moved directly by God rather than by his own reason. That is why such souls have a wisdom which far surpasses all book learning, as was the case of the young girl Catherine of Alexandria, who confounded the philosophers. If you are governed by the Holy Spirit, you will be endowed with a prudence and a counsel which is wiser than that derived from experience. Every mind you see has two sides. It has a speculative side which knows theory and a practical side which directs and guides. A sinful life does not destroy the intellect which is concerned with theory. That is why an evil man can be just as good a mathematician as a saint. But an evil life does ruin the practical intellect. That is why when a learned but evil mathematician turns to writing on morals and religion, he can be a bundle of confusion. If you are a God-directed person, you will be capable of guiding and directing others far better than those who have more knowledge in a purely theoretical fashion. That, incidentally, is why you should be very careful in seeking guidance. The divorce cannot guide the married. And the teacher or the psychologist whose heart is unpurified cannot guide the young. As our Lord said, if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the pit. On the contrary, once you surrender to God, you will find you have a soul within a soul, a mind within a mind, a teacher within your reason. 
you will be inspired, not as apostles and prophets were inspired, but inspired to the extent that God speaks to you in your soul, and when love speaks, what else remains to be desired? So in conclusion, then the problem of whether or not we can find God is to be placed solely on our side. I think that what is wanting is our own will. So many failures in life are avoidable and needless. They could be remedied. Just as men today do not want war, but they want the things that cause war. So there are many who want to be happy, but they refuse to want that which will bring them happiness. Ever since the days of Adam, man has been hiding from God and saying, God is hard to find. The truth of the matter is that in each heart there is a secret garden which God made uniquely for himself. And that garden is like a safety deposit vault inasmuch as it has two keys. God has one key, hence the soul cannot let anyone else in but God. The human heart has the other key. Hence, not even God can get in without man's consent. And when the two keys of God's love and human liberty meet, then God walks once more in the garden of human heart. God is always at that garden gate with his key. We pretend to look for ours, saying we cannot find it. But all the while it is in our hand, did we but see it. The reason we are not happy is because we do not want God. As Leon Blois said, there is only one sadness in life, the sadness of not being a saint. God love you. You have just heard the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen deliver an address entitled, Is God Hard to Find? A copy of this address is yours for the asking. Please write to the National Council of Catholic Men, Washington, D.C., or to your favorite NBC station. And now we invite you, our listeners, to join Monsignor Sheen as he offers this prayer. God from whom to turn is to fall, toward whom to turn is to rise again, in whom to dwell is to find peace. God whom no one loses unless he be deceived, whom no one seeks unless he has been called, whom no one finds unless he is made pure. God whom to forsake is to perish, whom to search for is the same to love, whom to see is the same as to possess. God toward whom faith urges us, toward whom hope raises us, toward whom charity unites us. God in whom and by whom and through whom alone we can be happy. It is to thee we address our prayer. We beseech thee, hear us. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. 
Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome back to Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I hope you enjoyed that first talk entitled, Is God Hard to Find? And uh, he really isn't. He's there right in front of us. As Fulton Sheen said so beautifully, there is a latch on the door, and to open it, it's on the inside. We have the latch that opens to let God into our life, to let Christ be our Savior. And we have to let him save us. And <laughs> it's hard. I know it's hard. I laugh thinking about it sometimes. But you get Fulton Sheen's uh, beautiful sentiment. And uh, he really does care about you and your soul and you getting to heaven. He wants to help us all to get to heaven. And so I want to now share with you a retreat that uh, Bishop Sheen gave many years ago. It is a retreat with 12 talks in it, and so we'll share the first one with you today. And the first talk he's going to give is on the topic of choice. And now we hear that word so many times in society, you have a choice. And so he'll kind of break that down, what he means by choice. Um, and uh, so you'll be quite interested in the answer he gives. Uh, but uh, Bishop Sheen is always interesting. And uh, there's not one talk that doesn't have something in it that can change your life. And that's the beauty of his gift, uh, his gift of bringing souls to Christ. And so uh, let me now, without further ado, share with you this reflection from Archbishop Sheen entitled Choice. The subject of this evening's meditation will be choice. I will try to bring home to you the supreme alternatives that are before us. The alternatives of our eternal destiny. And I will begin by giving you two examples of choice. Because after all, our heaven or hell is before us every day. But there come great moments, too, when we make decisions for much of our life. One of these stories will be taken from Paris and the other from London. And both of them were my own experiences. I had gone down from Brussels to Paris to preach a sermon on the second Sunday of February. And I stayed in a small hotel. There was an Englishman playing the piano in an adjoining room and playing it well. I complimented him. And then I asked him if he would like to go out for dinner. He said, I've never talked to a priest before in my life. Well, we're just like anyone else. You stick me with a pin. I will jump too. <laughs> so we sat down to table in this small restaurant. And he said, do you ever have questions to answer? This is my problem. I have never met in my life one good man or one good woman. I thanked him for the compliment. <laughs> and then he went on. 
He said, now this coming 11th of February, over there at that table, there was a lady trying to break a lump of sugar in a cup of coffee. She couldn't do it, so I went over and broke the lump for her. And she told me how mean her husband was to her. I asked her to come to live with me. <laughs> well, she did, and I get tired of them all after about 12 months. So he said this morning, I bundled up all of her clothes. I left them with the concierge, but she anticipated my move, and she gave me this note. Dear puppy, if you refuse to continue living with me until our anniversary, the 11th of February, I shall commit suicide by throwing myself into the same. Now may I permit her to live with me to prevent suicide? I said, no, you may not do evil that good may come from it. And furthermore, she will not commit suicide. It got to be about 11 o'clock at night. He said, I will walk you back to the hotel. I'm not going to the hotel. I'm going to Montmartre. He said, I was just beginning to think that maybe you were all right. And now you tell me you're going up to that hell hole. Well, I said, there's something else in the hill of Montmartre besides dives. There's a great basilica there, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. And every night for over 50 years, there are a thousand men in prayer all night long. I induced him to come with me. He said, how long? I said, I will leave when you are ready to leave, though I intend to stay all night. He made no move to go until the sun came up over Paris and I read Mass. Walking down the hill of Montmartre, he said, will you stay in Paris and teach me to be good? It's the first time in my life I've ever contacted goodness. I agreed to meet him that night in his courtyard at 8 o'clock. He came in with a woman, not the one that was involved in the story. And he said, we will go out to dinner, the three of us. And I said, no, this is not a social evening. You must make a choice. Either you are going out with that woman, or you are going out with me. He walked up and down the courtyard a couple of times and came back and said, well, Father, I think that I'll go out with her. And that's the end of the story. The choice was made after having received a great grace. Please, God, before he dies, he will recall that night at Montmartre. That was the choice for evil. Another kind of choice. I spent about seven or eight years of my life in all in a parish in London, in the Soho Square district. I opened the church door this particular morning. It was a cold January morning, heavy London fog, and a limp figure fell in, a young woman. I said, how did you happen to be here? Where am I, Father? I said, oh, Father, yes, he said, I used to be a Catholic, but not anymore. 
You were drunk. Yes, she said, I was drunk. Well, I said, men drink because they like the stuff. Women drink because they don't like something else. What were you running away from? She said, three men. I was in love with each of them and they were beginning to find it out. And so I got drunk. What is your name? And pointing to a billboard opposite the church on the walls of the Cross and Blackwell Jam office, I said, is that your picture over there? Yes, I'm leading lady in that musical comedy. Made a cup of coffee for her, but she was frozen from the night exposure. She said, thanks. I said, no, come back this afternoon and thank me. She said, I will on one condition, that you do not ask me to go to confession. I said, very well, I shall not ask you to go to confession. She said, I want you to promise me faithfully that you will not ask me to go to confession. I said, I promise you faithfully that I will not ask you to go to confession. She came back that afternoon before matinee, and I said, we have two paintings in this church that are very notable. Would you like to see them? As I took her down the side aisle of the church, I pushed her into a confessional. <laughs> I always keep my promises. <laughs> Two years later, I gave her her veil as a nun in the convent of adoration, where she is to this very hour. So that cold January morning, another choice had to be made, and it was a choice for good. And this is the choice that each and, of every, each and every one of us is making. Now let me read you about the two choices. One from the Old Testament, and the other from the New. Incidentally, I will always be reading from the New English Bible. The New English Bible which is, by all odds, the most beautiful of the texts. God speaks. I offer you the choice of life or death, blessing or curse. Choose life, and then you and your descendants will live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and hold fast to him. Or else, if you choose evil, you will be cursed. Now from the New Testament, from Matthew, it is remotely possible that I have missed my reference, but I know I have it here. I get so nervous when I miss anything. <laughs> Our Lord and Savior is speaking. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide that leads to perdition, and there is plenty of room on the road. And many go that way. But the gate that leads to life is small, and the road is narrow, 
and those who find it are few. This was much more intelligible in the days when the city was surrounded by walls. There was the great gate that opened up into the highway and the very narrow gate, the narrow road that led into separate houses. So our Lord is saying there's a broad road, a wide gate, and many travel that road. There's a narrow road and a narrow gate, and few there are who go in. Now suppose it be said, but I will not make a choice. I will live indifferently. Not to make a choice is to choose. No boy, for example, ever decides in life that he's going to be ignorant. He just doesn't study. No one ever decides that he is going to be a dishonest criminal. He just does not practice honesty. White fences do not remain white fences, they become black fences because we do not paint them and take care of them. Naturalists tell us that the mole which burrows in the ground once had eyes to see, but he chose not to use those eyes. And nature, as if seated in judgment, said, take the talent away. There is an animal in the called the crustacea in one of the caves of Kentucky that seemingly has perfect eyes. If you cut the eye with a scalpel, you find all of the nerves desiccated. It chose the darkness, and the penalty was the loss of vision. So everybody is making a choice even when they do not choose. Now, what are some of these choices? How are they pictured? Well, first of all, I think the choice that is offered us is something like the choice that was offered on the sunlit portico of Pontius Pilate the day that he brought our blessed Lord and Barabbas out before the mob. Now, our blessed Lord had the bloody sweat the night before. He was scourged. He was made king for a day. When I visited Jerusalem, I noticed on the walls of the floor of the Praetorium of Pilate, for example, a big letter B, beta, Greek letter, then the Roman numeral, 12, and then other numbers. These carvings and the great rocks in the Praetorium of Pilate were a game the soldiers played, king for a day. The B meant Basilius in Greek, king. If the dice would fall in that B, he was king for a day. Now, when our blessed Lord was brought down into that Praetorium, they mocked him, they put on a crown of thorns, they gave him a reed, they put on a purple robe, and they bowed before him mockingly as their king and their lord. Now, Pilate brings him out on his sunlit portico, and with him, Barabbas, a great popular hero. Let us remember that 
was not just a robber, as has been described. He was rather a revolutionist. And there was reason for revolution in Jerusalem because the Jews were under the servitude of the Romans. He was anti-establishment. He was popular because he was violent. He tried to overthrow the Roman authority. And Pilate now brings out on the court these two figures. There is even some evidence in the early manuscripts of Scripture that the name of Barabbas, but Barabbar means in Hebrew son. Rabbas is rabbi. So he was the son of the father. Pilate, therefore, was really saying, which shall I release to you, Jesus, the son of the heavenly father, or the son of the father, Barabbas? They chose Barabbas. Release unto us Barabbas. That's right here with your Christ. Crucify him. Now we have that choice. We are in many important moments of our life making that decision. We are opting for the hero or we are opting for the one who for the moment is quite unpopular. Or to put it in other scriptural language. We are going to one of two cities. St. Augustine of the of the 4th century wrote a book called The City of God in which he contrasted it with the city of evil. Now in the last book of scripture which is the book of Revelation there are two cities that are described. This is I think one of the most apropos books of modern times. It's very very difficult to understand and there are many things in it which we'll never understand until it's too late, really. But there are two cities. One is the city of Babylon, and the other is the city of Jerusalem. Not the Babylon, the historical Babylon, but the Babylon that is yet to come, the corrupt city of evil. And this is the way John describes it. Then one of the seven angels that held the seven bowls came and spoke to me and said, Come, and I will show you the judgment on the great horror enthroned above the ocean. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and on the wine of her fornication men all over the world have made themselves drunk. In spirit he carried me away into the wild, and there I saw a woman mounted on a scarlet beast which was covered with blasphemous names. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand she held a gold cup full of obscenities and the foulness of her fornication. And written on her forehead was a name with a secret meaning. Babylon the Great the mother of whores and every obscenity on the earth. The woman I saw was drunk with the blood of God's people and with the blood of those who had borne their testimony to Jesus. That is one city. 
than the other city, which will be at the end of time. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Our blessed Lord. Who is the wife or the bride of the Lamb? The church. All of us who will be members in heaven, one of another. So when spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. It had the radiance of some priceless jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great wall with twelve gates at which were twelve angels, and on the gates were inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So ultimately, at the end of our choice, after having chosen either Christ or Barabbas, there will be two cities awaiting us. The city of Babylon and the great marriage. For in heaven there will be the marriage of the Lamb, the bride, which is the... Now let us look at a few characters who have made this choice. St. Augustine. St. Augustine was the hippie of early, the early church. He was a very learned man, dissolute, but he still had a yearning to be good. And he often prayed, Dear Lord, I want to be good, but not now. A little later on, we all say that prayer. And one day he was with his friend, Alepius, in a garden. And he was torn on the inside between following the way of the spirit and following the way of the flesh. And he heard a voice, the voice of a child, saying, Tole, lege, take up the book and read. And he read from the epistle of the Romans, not in chamberings and in impurities, but in obedience to the Spirit. And Augustine chose that day to follow Christ and became one of the great saints of the church. Even pagans had this choice. Five or six centuries before Christ was the great teacher of antiquity, Socrates. And he was constantly telling the youth of Athens that there was an absolute in morality and there was one God, not many. And that was a crime against the state. Socrates was condemned to death. And they offered him a chance to escape because of his influence and his prestige and his goodness. And Socrates would not escape. And they gave him the hum hemlock juice. And he drank it. And as he was losing consciousness, he said, Oh, yes, I owe a rooster to Asclepius. Refusing to escape, he said, I shall follow whatever way God leads me. So even the pagans have the choice. An interesting story from the Old Testament. There was a famine in the city of Bethlehem. And Ruth left the city of Bethlehem, or rather the town of Bethlehem, 
and went into the Moab country. Now, that was non-Jewish. And she should not have done it even during a famine. And she took with her her two sons. They married two Moabite women. The two sons died. Naomi had two daughters-in-law in her hand. One was Ruth, and the other was Orphe. And Naomi said, I'm going back again to my own land. Now choose what you will do. Ruth said, your God shall be my God. Your country shall be my country. Your Lord, my Lord. I shall go with you. Orphe went back to her pagan people. Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David, who was the notable king who foretold the kingship of our blessed Lord. So at the beginning, therefore, of this of these series of conferences. Think on the choice that you are making. Never be discouraged. You have plenty of help. We will develop that as time goes on. And perhaps I can describe maybe some of the difficulties that we have and the hopes in terms of some of the great sculpture of Michelangelo. Michelangelo was commissioned to do the tomb of Julius II. This tomb was never finished. What you see in Florence today are four half-formed figures coming out of the marble, struggling, striving to be released. That is a picture of ourselves. We know this choice is before us. We're striving. The flesh weighs upon us. Old habits Weakness of will, but like these characters, we hope for an upsurge from all that is cold and inert. The second statue, the statue of King David. A sculptor in Florence tried to make a statue, and he ruined it. But it was a beautiful piece of Carrara marble. One day Michelangelo passed by and saw that marble, asked that it be brought to his studio, applied his genius, his inspiration, and his skill, and brought out of it the immortal statue of David. And so though our lives have been spoiled, though they may have been hacked and ruined by circumstances or other artists, the great finger and hand of God can mold us into immortality. And finally, the Pieta. Here is a young woman having seen her divine son crucified and then taken down and put in her lap as a kind of a drained chalice. And yet she's not broken with grief. There's not sadness. There is peace. There is resignation to God's will. An interior calm 
for she sees that sacrifice was part of the divine message to her son and to herself. And as we struggle to overcome all of the alien influences that there are in the world, those we will talk about too, as we struggle to overcome them, we're never to be cast down by trials, by discipline, by mortification. We have God with us. Christ is in our souls. You're good people. You would not be here if you were not good. And even though you're not as good as you would want to be, you've come here because you want to be better. There's a deep yearning today in the American soul for goodness and spirituality. And you manifest it. And if you bear with me during these talks, I will lead you step by step to inner peace, to inner joy and consolation. Thank you, and God love you. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.